Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. That gets to the heart of modern marketing, right? Is bringing empathy to the table. Say, people came to me for a great in-person experience, but that's not what they need right now because they're stuck at home. What do they need? So again, it goes back to your audience, understanding who they are and what do they need? How are you uniquely qualified to provide them with that? And again, it's different for every concept in every market, but it starts by asking those questions. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. We've spent the last 15 months together questioning every assumption about this industry. What I've learned from more than 100 interviews is that a 6% net profit doesn't need to be the standard. I've collected the best practices from the best operators in the world and created a guide detailing the five steps they've all taken to achieve a 15% net profit in their restaurants. You can download that guide for free by visiting restaurantprofitguide.com. Again, that's restaurantprofitguide.com. Can we make more money today, please? Are there actually simple fixes to the problems we've been suffering from as an industry for the last, I don't know, thousand years? The reality is most of us don't make enough money. And today we're talking with Chip Close, who's trying to fix that. In our conversation today, Chip lays out some simple, easy to execute tips and tricks for scaling profitability and our overall online presence. So I live here in New York City. I moved here 20 years ago. I've spent my entire adult life working in restaurants. I worked my way up from the bottom, started as a host, then a server, a manager, maitre d', uh, made a living for many, many years opening restaurants. I opened Michelin star restaurants. I've worked with James Beard Award winners, Berlin Chateau Properties. I, I kind of leveraged all that operational experience, switched over into marketing. And now the last five years or so, I've taken all of that knowledge, all of that experience, and uh, I'm a restaurant consultant. I work with chefs and operators to help them build more profitable restaurants. Let's start high level. What are the common issues that you see most restaurant owners and operators tackling out there? Yeah, so they do things the way that it's always been done. They do things the way that they were taught, and they don't think deeply about what they're doing. Let's take marketing, for example, right? So when I ask people, like, what do you do for marketing? They give me one of two answers. Number one, I can't afford to do that. That's for big companies. That's for bigger organizations. It's just me. It's just me and a couple of people. We don't do that. Or the other side, they say, oh, yeah, yeah, we do Instagram. Did you see our Instagram feed? Instagram is not marketing. And marketing is not reserved for big, big companies. In fact, when we talk about social media, when we talk about email and SEO and websites and all of that, those are all tools, but that's not marketing. And so what I like to talk to restaurant owners about specifically is going back to the basics, right? Which is that what is marketing? I always answer it in three questions, right? Marketing is what's the product? Who is it for? And how can you reach them, right? If you have a product, you got to figure out who's most apt to love what it is you do. 
And then all you got to do is let them know about it or done in reverse order. You figure out what is a problem that needs solving. You look at a demographic, you look at a market, you look at a neighborhood and you say, what do they need? And how am I uniquely qualified to provide them with that? And then you provide them the solution. And again, then you have to figure out, you say, hey, we figured out a problem. I went and crafted a solution to your problem that I think you're going to love. And then all of the work of marketing is trying to let people know that you see their problem, that you solved their problem, and you're going to solve it again and again and again. And just at the base level, that's where I think a lot of operators fail because they don't take the time to just look at it from a simplistic perspective of like, What's the problem you're solving? Who are you serving? And it's ironic because we work in restaurants and it's all about serving, right? We just take care of people for a living. And yet I think there's just some more fundamental work that needs to be done on the part of most operators. I was one of those dudes for sure. I thought that the function of marketing was to create demand, but it doesn't. It just facilitates demand. It breeds awareness for what you're doing. And either people have an intrinsic desire to participate in that or they don't. If someone doesn't like bologna sandwiches. Perfect example. Right. So when you talk about demand generation, right? Like you can try to get right. So there's this old thing, right? In marketing, say a marketer fails when they try to convince you of two things, right? So if I go to you and I say, hey, I just opened a coffee shop. Do you drink coffee? And you say, no, I don't really drink coffee. Then first I have to convince you to drink coffee. I say, well, you really should drink coffee in the morning. It's a great way to wake up. And when I convince you of that, let me convince you to go to Chip's coffee shop. When I have to convince you of two things, I lose. I lose every time. It doesn't matter what industry, what market, what product I'm trying to sell. So if I'm trying to sell you bologna sandwiches, better to figure out who are the people that love bologna sandwiches. Let me find them and just market to them. It's such a simplistic view. It's what big companies have figured out. And in restaurants, we haven't. And I think we'd really, really help ourselves if we would just say like, hey, you cut out a certain percent of the population and just serve the people who really want what you have. So let's unpack that a little bit. So there are a bunch of people listening right now that realize that they have this product market fit issue. And they're like, great, Chip, but I already opened the restaurant. I'm already selling these things. Like, what is the move there? Is it back to the drawing board? Is it increasing the breadth of the menu to try and facilitate some of that demand? How do you accomplish that goal without bastardizing the brand you've already created? It's a great question. And here's the best part about our industry. Our transactions last for hours, literally for hours. Most transactions these days, right? You walk into a store, you find what you want, you go in, you scan it, you pay for it, and you leave, right? A transaction is short. And if you're on the internet, it takes a matter of seconds, not even minutes. But our transactions take place over the course of an hour or two hours or longer. We have a very long time to engage, to interact with our customers. There are opportunities to just observe them. There are opportunities to engage with them, actually <laughs> actually ask them instead of going over and say, hey, you enjoying everything? And people say, yeah, yeah, it's really good. Thank you actually engage with them. Have you been here before? Do you live in the neighborhood? Where else do you like to go? What are you enjoying about here? What don't you like, right? We rarely ask that. Like, hey, can I ask you, what are you not enjoying tonight? What can we fix? It begins with the audience you're looking to serve, right? It's that, what's the product? Who is it for? How can you reach them? If you've created a product and you haven't found who it's for, then ask the people, ask the people who are coming in, And there are a thousand different ways to do that. It depends on your concept, your market, what you're trying to do. But start there. You can observe a lot. You can ask a lot. 
I guess my only concern with that is, and look, I think it's great advice, but a lot of people listening are going to say, I mean, my customers have no earthly idea what they want, right? So is there a strategy outside of just asking everyone that walks through the door what they want to get it done? Are there targeted questions that they should use that they should be posing on social media or through neighborhood associations in order to get the information that they need to create that perfect product market fit? Yeah. And so I say to observe, I say to ask, right? The other piece to this is data, not anecdotal, but actually using hard data numbers. You run your PMIX, you know what's selling and what's not. You know what your check average is. You know what other, be deliberate about looking at what other restaurants. Have you identified your competitors? When people say, hey, let's go to Josh's restaurant. Where are the other five places that they're debating? When I say, hey, do you want to go out to dinner tonight? You say, where should we go? I say, well, we can go to Josh's place or What are the other five places? Are you really clear about your category, about your competitors? And do you really know what they're serving, how much they're selling, how much, what the price point is, and actually how busy they are? Not anecdotally, like, oh, I walked by and they looked really full, but have you been specific about it? Have you looked at them at five o'clock, at six, at seven? I've opened restaurants and sent hostesses around the corner to the eight places that I knew we were going to compete with. And they went and they literally did loops. So I had three hosts, one did five, one did six, one did seven. And then we did it again, eight, nine, and 10 o'clock because I wanted to know what these places were. Now, is that something you can do every single night on and on? No, but if you're going to try and capture data, if you're going to try to find the answers to these, you know, there are things that are available to us. Really figure out what people are doing. And I think if you took the time to really look, to really ask, to really think, to really look over the data, I think you'd get a lot of answers. I'm surprised with how often the answers are just right there. They just never ran the report. They never walked around the corner. They never engage with the table. I say this all the time to restaurant operators. I say, listen, I challenge you on Saturday night to write a little notebook, keep a little notebook behind the counter, but in the back by the barista station and touch every single table in the dining room and find something important out about the table. So you can't find that out by saying, how are you enjoying everything? Say, oh, it's really good. Okay, great. Thought everything was good. Like, that's not what, I want to know their daughter's going away to Cornell. I want to know they just moved into the neighborhood. Whatever it is, if you get to know your guests like that, they'll start sharing. If you engage in a meaningful way, not a, how you enjoying everything? Hey, thanks for coming in. But actually, hey, I've seen you here. Or, hey, I've never seen you here. Have you been here before? I'm Josh. I own this restaurant. If you engage at a real meaningful level, it'll change the relationship and it will change the dynamic of your restaurant. I've watched it happen. I want to take a step back because before we talk about driving traffic, we should talk about margins because I myself was always focused on more and more and more revenue. And I think my first step should have been to fix my revenue model before pushing a shit ton of business through the door. (laughs) And I know you have a lot to say about that as well, right? Yeah. I mean, this is so much what I do as a consultant. I work with operators to help them get everything in line. And the first thing they always say is that I want to get more butts and seats. We want to get more butts and seats. We're all guilty of it, right? I was a maitre d' for years. I opened, I don't know, eight restaurants, ran the front door. I understand the importance of butts and seats. You as an operator, as a former operator, you know the importance of butts and seats, but there are two ways to drive revenue, right? more butts and seats, or maximizing the spend. And likewise, there are two sides to profitability, which is revenue and expenses. And I know we all know this, the operators, people listening to this podcast know this, and yet this is so much of what I do is try to simplify and just remind you, there are two ways to get to a bottom line, right? The P&L, the expenses and the revenue. So I'm going to share with you 
two tips on the revenue side and two tips on the expense side. And maybe these will seem overly simplistic to some people, but I hope to challenge you and frame it in a new way. So my number one tip, my number one tip for driving additional revenue is through second beverage sales. And I always joke around. I say it's all about table maintenance, that the number one way to drive more revenue is to promote table maintenance with your servers because you have to make it actionable, right? So if I say really push second beverage sales, really push refills, really push a second bottle of wine, they go, okay, well, that's what I'm trying to do. But if you make it actionable, if you focus on the blocking and tackling, right, which is table maintenance, right? Clear dead glasses off the table. Look when there's an ounce left of wine. If you just worry about trying to keep the table clean, it's going to push that forward. Second beverage sales, number one, that's the number one way to drive more revenue, to increase check average. I always give this example, say, okay, so if we just got one additional drink per table, so the average server, right, takes care of a four table station, they maybe do two turns a night, so that's eight tables a night. If they got one additional drink on the table, that's $10 per table, it's $80 a night in additional revenue that they're driving, right? So we're not even talking an additional round of drinks, just one drink, right? It's $80. Say you've got five servers on the floor, it's $400 in additional revenue a night, and you say, okay, so what? But at the end of the week, if you got all of your servers focused on that, it's $2,800. You extrapolate out a month, six months, a year. By the end of the year, it's almost $150,000 just by getting your servers to focus on one additional drink a night. And of course, now you can do the math. What happens if you get two drinks, two additional drinks on there? And you do that by giving them the tools to, again, being right there, being right there when the drink is almost done, be right there when their bottle of wine is almost poured off, right? There's this data that says four out of five tables will decline a second bottle of wine if offered when entrees are on the table. Three out of five tables will say yes if you offer before the entrees hit the table. So you got to make sure your servers understand these tricks because again, then that translates directly into their pocket, right? So if that one server drives $80 in additional revenue, again, they see 20% of that, 16 bucks. And again, 16 bucks a night, who cares? But when you start doing the math and you extrapolate it out, it ends up being a real number. It's going to help you and it's going to help them. The other one, and this is super simple, and I always like to give these because consultants get a bad rap because consultants come in and they stand in the corner, arms crossed, they point at all the stuff that's not working, and they say it's going to take a really long time to fix because they get paid by the hour, they get paid by the week, whatever it is, right? So I like to give my clients just quick wins. I say, here's the thing. Run the P-Mix and find your most popular appetizer, your most popular entree, most popular dessert, most popular signature drink, and raise the price on those items by 10%. So you got a lobster roll on menu, it's 20 bucks, make it 22 bucks. I promise you, no one will care. If it's that good, if your servers are pushing it, if people come for that lobster roll, spending 22 bucks instead of 20 is no big deal. And it will make a big difference in your revenue. You start doing little things like that. And I've got a ton of tricks like that. There are all different ways to do it, but those two are such an easy lift, an easy thing to do. One, you start focusing your servers on the second beverage sales. The other one, just go and run your PMX and update the uh, prices on your menu overnight. And then when we look on the other side, we talk about managing expenses, because again, two sides of profitability. The number one thing that I'm surprised that chefs don't do or, or operators don't do is they don't take the time to cost out their menu. And I've worked at a very high level. And so I'm just used to like everything's being cost out. We understand the cost of goods sold. We understand what's going on that plate. And so we know how to price it. This is obviously really coming into effect now as everyone's talking about inflation, as food costs are rising. And if you're not raising your prices now, you're probably losing because food prices have gone up so much over the last six months. So take the time to cost out everything and be deliberate about it. Number one, it's going to help you get really specific about what goes on the plate. 
how many ounces of potato, how many ounces of sauce, how many ounces is each cut of fish, each cut of steak. Get really deliberate. And then you're going to know it's going to spit out. I mean, you can build a spreadsheet like this. I build, Everyone has the capability to build a spreadsheet like this, right? But you just figure out how much do I pay for onions? How much do I pay for potatoes? How much for broccoli? Whatever it is, and you figure out it costs me $6.72 to put this dish on the plate. And then you figure out that's how you hit your food costs. And I know it seems simple, overly simplistic. It's a lot of work for like a week. And then once it's done, it's done. Your spreadsheet will be done. You just update it every time the pricing change. Every time you put a new menu item, you just create a new tab on the spreadsheet. And then the other thing that I always like to recommend with expenses, and this is especially appropriate now as we're coming out of COVID, right? It's a new normal. It's different than what it was before, is that you got to know your profitability hour by hour and day by day, because it's totally realistic. It's reasonable to expect that your business has not returned to where it was, that your business has changed, right? Other days are busier, other days are less busy. And it's totally possible that there are certain days that are unprofitable where you're losing money. There are hours of the day, right? Maybe you used to be open five to 10. Now maybe you should just be open five to nine, or maybe it's six to nine. Just by uh, being aware of what you do and really great POS systems will allow you to run that sort of stuff and get to the numbers, but understanding when you're making money and when you're not making money. I mean, I would argue that a lot of that comes down to asking the right questions. And I've talked about this before on the show, but I spent the large part of my career trying to figure out how to answer the question, how do I get busier on a Monday? And it's the wrong question to ask. The real question is, should I be open on a Monday? That's right. That's right. Because the statistics are startling that if you close one day per week and that's an off peak day that you weren't actually profitable on, you'll actually make up over time over a few months, 90% of those sales on the other six days that you're open. Because they like you. They're going to come on a Wednesday. They're going to come on a Thursday. It's absolutely right. And it's. I think this is now what people are being faced with. I've got a client here in New York and they reopen post-pandemic and they're not open Mondays and Tuesdays. They've been around for 25 years, open seven days a week, 14 services a week, and now they're just closed Mondays and Tuesdays. And they're like, this is incredible. We can get better staff. We got work-life balance, all of that. It's great. Well, and if you don't want to close, it could be a delivery only day or delivery and pickup only day. I think that there are a lot of options there for the people that are worried about not being able to maintain profitability because at the end of the day, we've all been chasing our tails, right? Like I was afraid to close one day a week because even though I was losing money, I still needed those top line sales in order to have enough cash in the bank to continue on day in and day out. And to touch on that as well, you also talk a lot about diversifying revenue streams in order to secure the foundation of the restaurant. Yeah, this is something I spent a lot of time talking about because, right, so our industry is crazy, right? So most other industries and most other businesses, they don't go into business unless they can guarantee 20 or 25% return. That's the way most businesses happen. You're certainly out in California, production company. Production company gives you a budget, slaps 20% on and says, this is what we can do it for. They know they're going to get paid from the very beginning, no matter what. And restaurants operate differently. And we always have. And you've talked about this a lot recently, and I really applaud you for doing it. I've been talking about this a lot. Like you just posted the other day, right? Like what would it look like if it were easy? What would it look like if it made money, if it were profitable? And I invite all of us to challenge ourselves to do that, to go to that place. The bottom line is, Pre-pandemic, so many restaurants out there, I mean, I would say 80 or 90% of the restaurants out there made their money one or two ways, right? So we made our money on in-person dining. Maybe you also had takeout or maybe you did takeout and did some in-person dining. 
And that was where everybody got screwed. Suddenly we had to shut down and I only make my money one way. When people come in, order, eat, and pay me for that experience. And now I think we've all learned the hard way, right? But diversifying your revenue streams, understanding that I don't do just one thing. We are a restaurant. We are capable of many things. So in-person dining for sure. And takeout and private events and offsite catering and retail and cookbooks and education and on and on and on, right? We've talked about this for 18 months, but it doesn't make it any less true. You got to figure out all of the different ways that you can generate revenue into your property. And so simply by stopping and looking and say, okay, just by asking the question, how can I generate more revenue? It breeds a certain kind of creativity that they can't be replaced. I mean, that's the beauty of the pivot, right? What happened over the pandemic is everybody that pivoted stopped and said, okay, I got people. They come to me for this. I can no longer offer them this, but what else can I offer them? What else do they need, right? That gets to the heart of modern marketing, right? Is bringing empathy to the table. Say people came to me for a great in-person experience, but that's not what they need right now because they're stuck at home. What do they need? So again, it goes back to your audience, understanding who they are and what do they need? How are you uniquely qualified? to provide them with that. And it's, again, it's different for every concept in every market, but it starts by asking those questions. And you don't have to do all of them. Here's the beauty of it. Don't do all of them, but pick three, four, five. I talk about a cookbook. It's never been easier to self-publish a cookbook, right? Find a writer, find somebody who can help you put the recipes together and lay them out. You're going to find a graphic designer to help you lay it all out and make it beautiful. And you're going to hire a photographer. Outside of that, you can do it all yourself. Sure. I agree with you wholeheartedly, but I think what would really help the folks listening and it would help me to get granular and wrap my mind around it. I'm a huge advocate of patterning, which is basically thievery, right? It's stealing. It's taking someone else's idea and repurposing it for your own needs, utilizing your own vision. And so I'm curious to know from home meal kits to cooking classes, wine classes, cookbooks, on and on and on and on. Are there examples that you have off the top of your mind that people could look up and say, oh, that's a great way to put out a cookbook. That's a great way to create it, to market it, the whole nine yards. Absolutely. So I'll give you a couple of examples from people that I've worked with in the past. So Il Fierista is a place here right in Nomad in New York City, right in the heart of New York City. And they are a flower forward restaurant, right? So they serve food, but they also do cooking classes. They're also a florist, right? The host stand is this giant table of fresh cut flowers. And so they'll put together arrangements for you. They'll do subscriptions, right? They also sell retail products there. They do cooking classes on Mondays because what they figured out over the pandemic is that it's more profitable for us to run flower classes or cooking classes or mixology classes once every other week or once a month than to lose money every night of the week. So they found a better use of their real estate. So that's a really great example. They make money six or seven different ways. Over the pandemic, we started doing at-home meal kits, right? So they're kind of Mediterranean, so like Italian-focused. The owners are Italian. So we started doing like the take and bake. So stuff that could be prepared there, it all was packaged up beautifully. And then you just take it home, you throw it in the oven with really cool, really easy to follow instructions, right? So that's a perfect example. They've got several different revenue streams. They've got the retail, they've got the flowers, they've got the subscription, they've got the cooking classes, they've got the takeout, They've got the at-home meal kits. Oh, and then their primary source of revenue, which is in-person dining. That's the first example. The other example is another company I worked for here, Gotham Barn Grill. Worked here for eight years. They were open for 36 years until the pandemic closed them. Same thing. They make the majority of their revenue from in-person dining. They were an institution in New York City 
before they shut down, right? But they also started a line of like uh, pantry items. It's called Gotham Selections. So it was a curated collection, right? They worked with Lavoie to put together a spice blend. So the chef went and said, let's put together a three pack, one for steak, one for game, one for fish. And they were able to put together, it was a co-branding opportunity, right? So we worked with the folks over there to put together a thing. We package it up, we sell it on our website, we sell it in the store. They also have a line of chocolates, right? So high-end bean-to-bar crafted chocolates. They eventually expanded from two bars to six bars to nine bars, right? That's another revenue stream. The bars, they can sell them on the website, they sell them in store, they now have a pop-up partnership with Nordstrom. It's another revenue stream. It's on and on and on. So right there, it was ways for them to expand their name, expand the brand, and to drive uh, additional revenue. And again, just two examples off the top of my head, uh, people that I've worked with. Let's assume we've established multiple revenue streams at a profitable margin. We're ready to really get ourselves out there. Social media is a great and typically free way to get this done. But it's also really overwhelming because we're not professional marketers. We don't know what to say, how to say it, on what platforms to say it. And then once we get that attention, how to convert those people into paying customers. And I know social media is a core focus of your consulting work. Can you talk to me about it? I'll push back on one thing you just said, right? It's a large, very accessible, free platform. And it's not. It's not free, at least not for businesses. It shouldn't be free. It's an advertising platform. That is what it is. And so we need to think of it in terms of other advertising outlets out there. That being said, I'm a little bit dubious about social media. I love it. I see the power of it. I see the opportunity that's available there. However, you don't own the platform. Facebook is a home unto itself, and you're just borrowing space there for free, right? They give you the space for free. But if Facebook shuts down tomorrow, I don't think they're going to shut down. I don't think we have a worry about that. But if they shut down, you don't own your platform. You lose everything. You lose all the followers you have and you lose the relationship you've built with your followers. Now, okay, I do an exaggerated version of it, meaning like what if Facebook shuts down? I think we can all agree they're probably not going to shut down, but they have changed consistently since they rolled out business pages back in whatever it was, 2006, 2007. They have changed the algorithm. You hear people say all the time, oh, they changed the algorithm again. The algorithm changes, which just means this the algorithm is always changing. Sometimes there's been larger, more significant changes, but it's basically who determines who sees what? Your customers, what they see, what you see when you go on, what I see when I go on. That's the algorithm. The algorithm determines what I see when I go on. So every time they change that, you lose something. You got to rethink. So I'm dubious about social media. And the thing that I always say is that you should use social media again because of its opportunity, because the access that it gives you to potential customers. And then you should spend a lot of your energy getting them off of that platform onto a platform that you own. You certainly know this. You've got the Pineapple Post. So by driving people to an email list, social media, there's so many different platforms available to you. My biggest advice is to just pick three and do them really well. Find out where your people are, where they are most apt to be, and go there, right? Not saying you can't change that, not saying you can't add, but it's better to do fewer and do a better job and really be present on those platforms than to try to have a mediocre presence across a lot of different platforms. Uh, but I always give like a three-step process. You gotta be willing to spend money because that's what it is. You have to pay to play. You can post organic posts as much as you want, Facebook and Instagram are still only going to show it to so many people. You've got a thousand followers. They're going to show it to 50 of them. It doesn't matter about the other 950 and it doesn't matter how viral it goes or whatever. They're going to go 50 and they're going to show it to another hundred. 
you're still only reaching a fraction of the followers you have. And so as you start scaling up to 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, businesses have to be willing to spend money. And then here's the overwhelming part. Like you said, I think you got to be willing to spend money intelligently. So again, it's got to be connected to a goal. What do you hope to achieve? If the goal is to get customers, unfortunately, you can't just show a picture of steak and they're going to go, that's so great. We got to make a reservation and go tonight. It just doesn't happen, right? There's that old cliche in marketing says people buy from people that they know, like, and trust. And that's absolutely true. This idea of the brand promise. Every brand makes a promise with the consumer. They say, I promise to deliver a romantic experience where you're going to have a great anniversary. And then you either believe them or you don't believe them. If you believe them, you make a reservation and you go and enjoy your anniversary there. But everybody has a promise. So what you need to do is you have to understand that people need to get to know you first. I would say run an ad, spend a moderate amount of money, even just $100 over the course of the month, figure out what your budget's going to be. I always recommend people start with a budget of $300. Spend $100 on an engagement ad, figure out what's really performing well, and then turn that into an ad that they're going to show it to people in the market that you want. So in your market, I live here in New York City. I'll show it to people in the tri-state area. Try to get likes, shares, and comments. You're just figuring out who is interested enough to like. They're not interested enough yet to book a reservation, but they're interested enough now to just like your stuff, right? So that's the first step. Second step is to retarget to those people. After you run that enough time, you're going to have a warm audience, right? So think of this in a typical sales funnel, right? A cold audience is people who don't know you. And then you warm them up. They know you and they have liked you enough to like your thing or to comment on it or to share it. That's what the engagement gets you. So you run the one ad to, you know, an engagement ad to figure out who likes you enough to do something on the ad. And then you're going to run another one that's going to try to drive them off of Facebook, off of Instagram, over to a platform you own so that you can market to them later down the line. And then the third piece to that is you're going to take your email list. You're going to plug that into Facebook or Instagram. Again, same company, so you can run ads to either one. And you are going to then try to convince them to take some action, booking a reservation, buying tickets, ordering online, downloading your app, right? This is not just for fine dining. It's for QSR and everything all the way up to the fanciest of the fancy. If you set a system in place where that's just going all the time in the background, it's going to work. But that's how you do it. You get from cold to warm to a hot audience. And that's how you utilize social media. The most important thing, though, is you're spending all your energy to get them off of the platform. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Go back to the basics. Really get to know who your audience is. Really get to know what they need. Figure out who else is trying to serve them, right? Like your competitors and figure out, most importantly, how you are different. What are the stories only you can tell? How do you stand out? How do you separate yourself from everyone else out there? Why are you remarkable? Why should I cross the street to go there? Why should I go out of my way? Why should I pay a little bit extra? Everybody can supply an answer to that. You just simply have to take the time to answer the question. That's Chip Close. For more on Chip, go to chipclose.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. 
A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.